You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. Hey, I'm Johnny again. I use he, him pronouns. Let's read the Bible. First uh, Corinthians 1, 10 through 18 um, is the passage from the Revised Common Lectionary today, and we're going to use that. We also read a psalm from the Revised Common Lectionary, and then I'm going to mess with the gospel reading a little bit. I'm not going to mess with it, I'm just going to reference it. Um, so, any volunteers to do that? And by the way, is there a portable mic- microphone that exists? We like to talk in this thing so that we can hear one another, um, but also so that the folks on Zoom, there's people on Zoom back there. And by the way, if you don't have the elements of communion on Zoom, just take whatever, whatever you got near you. You know, it could be any sort of food or drink or just drink or just food, whatever you want, you know. I don't want to be too irreverent, but anything really works. Let's get a volunteer. You, you can do it, I guess. You can hand it off. No, you can read or hand it off. Someone read this. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is a power of God. Thanks for reading that. Let's pray together. Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When I was younger, my dad's side of the family, which largely they immigrated from Egypt to the Lehigh Valley, a lot of them in Allentown, they'd gather for big holidays like Easter or Thanksgiving or Christmas. We were all kind of part of the same church too. My grandfather had a church and they were all there and all the cousins would be there. My dad has three brothers, has had three brothers and two sisters. So I had like 17 cousins on this one side and then there's a whole other set of them on my mother's side. And we'd get, we'd get, I was among the youngest on my father's side. Although on my mother's side, I'm among the oldest. So different, different roles. Anyway, we'd gather and joyous, festive, so fun to have all the cousins together. And I, I, I live with one of, my, one of those cousins now. So that's kind of cool. And, but eventually, like, we got older and then we stopped gathering. And this was curious to me. Because well, people got married, people got divorced, but people got married, started spending time with their in-laws. That happens. And 
Um, I don't know how to. I don't know how bad this is going to sound, but when they married white people, they didn't connect as much to our main group. They had they developed their own kind of connection with their in-laws, you know. And we thought, I mean, as far as Egyptians go, we felt pretty cool about you know inviting white folks to our house. It didn't bother us too much, you know. We're going to be hospitable and welcome you, you know. Probably like overwhelm you at times, but you know, you could, nothing's going to happen to you. You'll be okay. Um, but that happened. And they got jobs too, and they were far flung across the country. Like my roommates, my roommate, my cousin's family, my cousin's brother and sister, are like in St. Louis, Arizona, California, all over the place. But for me, the most noteworthy memory was in 2004, the, the death of my grandpa, or we say Giddu. And I don't know, I don't know, I haven't really tested this, because I don't know if anyone agrees with my idea. But I think once he died, the brothers mainly kind of took claim on the family territory, and they kind of separated. There was no more, uh, like, patriarch holding them together. Sometimes we gather, but without that patriarch, the family lacked some cohesion, in my opinion. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody like, would admit this. Or even, this is just my observation. Leadership matters when it comes to families and organizations and churches, or really any assembly. How we lead, what leading means, you know, whether we're led by an individual, by a group of people. We want strong, ethical, visionary people to lead us. And, but we also know that those leaders can't be centers of the movement, the linchpins that hold them together. A movement worth being involved in has to be bigger than the uh, charismas or momentum of the leader at the helm. I thought my own family of origin was held together by a patriarch and lost some of its intimacy it once had once he died. I wondered, what, what, what holds, if that's the case, what holds you together? Is it love? Is it honor, respect? Is it fear? You know, is it fear of something? Is that why we gather? Why, what's happening? And once that fear is gone, we stop gathering? Do we gather because we love each other? Do we gather because it's the honorable thing to do? But whatever it was, it seemed to have... It left when Giddu left. And maybe some of that's natural. Part of growing up is moving out of your parents' house, after all. Going to new places, separating a little bit. Psychologists call that differentiating. But I think there are parts that aren't so normal. How much integrity does a mission or a movement have if it's merely as strong as its leader? And how much is it okay for movements and organizations to change with changes in leadership? How does a family stay together? if the heirs to the patriarch seem to be in competition or aren't interested in that sort of unity. How does that work? I saw this played out in my family. I'm going to be honest with y'all. I wanted to keep it to how my family was organized and what leadership meant for them. And that was the story that you can relate to, okay? I really have tried in my, in, in my life as a pastor 
to not lean on a particular set of analogies that would become, that are easy for me. But if you'll indulge me, here's another one. When Chip Kelly is a college football coach who had success scouting and recruiting players. Now, this man had success scouting and recruiting players, which is much different than drafting players. And there are two different skill sets in the NFL, different ideas. He became the Eagles head coach. We thought we were going to be rather successful. We were very excited about Chip Kelly coming to town. He demanded then that he run the football operations of the whole team. And the king of the Eagles, or the owner, Jeff Lurie, granted him this power. And then Howie Roseman was relegated. Do I have Howie up here? Is Howie up here? There's Howie. Howie Roseman was relegated to another wing and isolated himself. And then Chip Kelly gutted our team. And he traded for, I mean, this, the, the period of time for the Eagles during this is just mind-boggling to me. He traded for a washed-up QB and basically just led the Eagles into two years of ruin, as far as I'm concerned. And in 2015, he was fired. And an unusual contender, Doug Peterson, was placed at the helm. Do we have Dougie B up here? There's going to be a lot of players and, and people in this one. Now, Doug Peterson... Not a known person, not a known commodity. Kind of had a relationship with Andy Reid, our old coach. And Carson Wentz, where's Carson? There he is. Carson was the quarterback. Our Super Bowl winning quarterback that year was brother Nick Foles here. And eventually Wentz and Peterson uh, were let go. They uh, left the organization. And there was some seemingly some faction building in the locker room. Now I'm telling you, it felt to me like in that moment, you had people following Cephas and Apollos and so on, like Paul is talking about. And then after that happened, Roseman hired Nick Sirianni, who is now our current coach. And at the time, we criticized the choice because Nick was unproven and seemed to have a low ceiling and he couldn't talk back to Roseman or Lurie. And for some reason, we thought leaders need to do that. We need to be dynamic and successful and controversial and loud like Chip was. Fire players, transform the organization. We thought that was good. But Nick Sirianni wasn't really like that. And I think that that was wrong of us to think that we needed this strong, powerful leader to blow up the team. Because when the Eagles had such a leader, the organization was torn in half and the team basically destroyed But something different happened. And something different is happening right now. See, and, and the Eagles won yesterday with Nick Sirianni. This is the best team we've watched ever, as far as I'm concerned. So it's a very exciting time to be a Philadelphia sports fan. To me. And as fans, we still pay homage to our leaders of old. We paid attention with great interest to Doug Peterson's Jaguars against Andy Reid's Chiefs, two former Eagles coaches in the, in the playoffs this year. But the thing that I noted is across all these organizational changes, my heart was still with the Eagles, no matter who led them. I still want to keep the family together, no matter who's in charge. Now, there's times where we're frustrated with one leader, happy with another one. Success helps. But I wonder what it looks like for the body of Christ to be held together by more than just 
charismatic leaders, dynamic leaders, founding pastors, and so on. And today I'm wondering about how leaders who hold organizational power encounter conflicts like what happened in Corinth when they end up leading factions of people. This is an old story. The church in Corinth, like I said earlier when doing communion, is divided among weak and strong, poor and rich, lower class and upper class. And Paul is telling us that they're further divided by factions that may be inadvertently led by these other leaders, or maybe they're being led that way, but it's hard to know what's happening. The church in Corinth is only like 150 people. It's not that big. So it's a fragile movement, and they already have factions around certain leaders. It's fragile. It's delicate. Paul wants the church to be united in the name of Jesus Christ in mission and vision. Paul isn't content. I don't want to be the leader that holds you together. He wants them to be united outside of the charisma of one leader or another. And he says, I'm grateful that I've only baptized two of you. The church itself is often divided between charismatic leaders. And not just in like multi-site churches or whatever, but also across traditions and denominations. Christian leaders even have movements named after them. Right? Like the Calvinists, right? After the French theologian John Calvin. Or the Wesleyans, John Wesley. The Lutherans, Martin Luther. Even, even, the, even the lowly Mennonites, Menno Simons. And this is also true of megachurches led by their individual leaders. But leaders can lead the body apart as opposed to together. And sometimes movements fall apart when, we, when they lose their charismatic leader. But Jesus isn't a charismatic leader. Jesus is a self-emptying. Like a servant leader who debased himself to relate to us. God incarnate came in the form of a baby, son of a carpenter, no place to rest his head. And he attracted crowds of people, gained notoriety. But consistently told recipients of his miracles, especially in the Gospel of Mark, to keep what he was doing secret. Don't tell anybody about this. He's not trying to gain notoriety and fame. You know, like we sang, uh, Sovereign of the Sea. I love that line. Jesus didn't want to be known as that, though. He didn't want that to be the thing. He was on a mission that was distinct. He was ushering in the kingdom of God. He was bringing liberation to the oppressed and freeing the captives. Engaged in a mission, not in a vanity tour. And at times would tell his disciples, whoever isn't against me is for me. The movement is being expanded. Is the son of man here? Has the son of man arrived? And he would reply with, can the blind see? Can the lame walk? Can the deaf hear? Are these, is this liberation happening? Is this healing work happening? That's when the kingdom of God is here, not when me. He told the people in John who were looking for signs of Jesus that a perverse generation looks for signs. He doesn't want to be known for what he's doing. He doesn't want to be gain notoriety. You know, he... Uh, wanted to be less than. He tells his followers, 
to follow suit. But the Apostle Paul says, make sure individual leaders don't lead movements that divide the church. And Jesus calls us to a radical servant leadership and self-emptying. Paul tells, that, tells us that Jesus in Philippians 2 radically self-emptied to the point of not thinking equality with God was something to be grasped. That's what Jesus is bringing to the table. Jesus isn't this sort of charismatic leader. In fact, in the other passage, the gospel reading today, Jesus is calling his disciples. I think last week he was the, 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 it was called the disciples in John, and this week it's in Matthew. And in Matthew, he looked for followers that were ready to drop their nets, let go of everything, and follow him. This self-emptying, this humility, it creates a vacancy within us that Jesus can fill. And it is this humility that the Corinthian leaders need to keep their body united. But this call to be self-effacing and self-emptying is sometimes called divisive. Isn't that interesting? That to keep the body united, we must self-empty, but sometimes calls to self-empty are called divisive. Because we want to hold on to our power and status, and the call of Jesus is too radical for many followers. Paul is making it clear that unity and mission and focus for churches is paramount and that they should not be divided, especially by fidelity to different leaders, but rather unity is, is, occurs by fidelity to Jesus and his mission. And in chapter 12, Paul tells us this. Let's get to the next slide, Luke. He says, but God has so arranged the body, giving greater honor to the inferior member that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. The way to keep the body united is by elevating those that we deem inferior. It's by self-emptying of your power empowering someone else. Yet when we do this, people say that's divisive. Well, what is uniting you? What is uniting your body? If not this call to self-emptying, this call to elevating the voices and the bodies of people that we deem inferior. Paul's vision for unity in Corinth and otherwise is to give greater honor to the oppressed and poor members in doing so ensures that there is no division or dissension in the body. The body is split up when leaders elevate their own voices and try to gain their own loyalty and develop their own factions. That's when the body is split. Paul has a vision for a radical egalitarianism and names that as important to keeping the church united. And this is a significant contrast from Christians who say things like anti-racism and LGBT inclusive are divisive. Far from it. These are the things that bring unity to our body. The unity that results when we resist those things burdens the oppressed. It is on the shoulders of the most vulnerable. If being faithful to God's call to side with the oppressed is divisive, and changes the integrity of the institution or the country, well, maybe the foundation needs to be shattered. 
For those of us who are committed to faithfully following Jesus as advocates for the side of the oppressed, this takes courage. And sometimes you'll be met with accusations of hatred and divisiveness. Even when you're resisting hatred and division. It's like when King Ahab came up to Elijah. King Ahab was being called out by Elijah for sins he was committing against God. And Ahab said to him, called Elijah a troubler of Israel. Sometimes, and and of course Ahab was indeed the troubler of Israel. Sometimes when you resist hatred and division, you're accused of doing those exact things. It's like when you uh, pursue anti-racism, for example, and then people threatened by it call you racist. Sometimes we'll be told that we don't like deliberation, we don't like dialogue, when we're just trying to get more people to the table to talk. But faithfulness is our call, not avoiding conflict. I mean, Paul is offering this very strong message to the Corinthians. He's calling them out, he's naming their problems. Some could say, you're bringing division to our body. Followers of Apollos or Cephas or whomever could say, you're the one writing us this letter and now you're dividing our body. But faithfulness is our call. This isn't to say that divisiveness is the only, is, is, is always, um, this is not to say that divisiveness is always good. It can be harmful. But it is important to name that faithfulness and transformation are the ways to unite us all rather than merely ignoring our differences and the power between them. Here's a, our friend Melissa Flora Bixler asks in her book, um, How to Have an Enemy. Who defines the center of our identity, one that pushes aside questions that are considered divisive politics by some, but are life and death to others? Who defines the center of our identity when one that pushes aside questions that are considered divisive politics by some or are a matter of life and death to others? Those in power are the ones who tend to name what is divisive and what is not, even when it comes at the expense and even the life of the most vulnerable. Power is what separates difference from enmity, she says, and it is the powerful who are leading us into being divided while those of us who resist doing so do it for the sake of our life. Paul's serious about divisiveness, but he never compromises faithfulness to God for the sake of unity. And a unity that burdens the oppressed is not a real unity. It is a false unity, and it is a direct affront to God who is on the side of the oppressed that contradicts the vision of Jesus, one that radically reorders the world. We can expect division and disruption and even death when we're heeding God's call. But elevating the vulnerable, lifting up the marginalized, liberating the oppressed is what can unite us as a body. If we insist on prioritizing some sense of unity over that common mission, we will end up burdening the most vulnerable, a disobedient act that demonstrates hatred towards God as, a, as willful opposition to God's priorities. So we need humble leaders who will serve that mission and it's not their vanity to keep us together.
Let's say a prayer and then we'll do some talk back, shall we? Lord, be with us and may we self-empty and be filled with your spirit and be filled with you as we humbly serve one another to hold this body together and any other body. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhope.net.